0: Isaiah chapter 6. You know, in a few days, a group of us are going to be going to Louisville, Kentucky for the Together for the Gospel conference. We go there every two years and. There's going to be close to 15,000 people there in a stadium, and we're going to be singing praises to the Lord, and we're going to get to hear some of our favorite pastors. We'll get to hear Matt Chandler and David Platt and John Piper and John MacArthur and all these these great speakers. And and it's always a special time to be in a worship service where you have 15,000 people uh, singing at the top of their voices. And I wonder... If you've ever had one of those rare moments, those rare moments in a worship service where you were leveled because you came face to face with the presence of the holy God and you were under the weight of your sin and it was just overwhelming to the point of it being pal- palpable. Maybe it was here to Emmanuel Maybe it was when you were driving in your car, listening to some music. Maybe it was when you went to a conference. Maybe you were at a retreat. Maybe you were out in the mountains. It doesn't matter where you were. It was one of those rare times where you had an encounter with God. Isaiah the prophet was no stranger to being leveled by God's holiness. Isaiah chapter 6, starting in verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. This is a traumatic experience for Isaiah. He is in the temple. And he sees none other than the exalted, kingly, royal lord of glory seated on the throne. The throne representing God's majesty, God's kingly power. And the train of his robe filled the temple with with glory. And then these flying creatures show up. These seraphim, the word means burning ones, and they're crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. You never see a threefold pattern of God's character in the Bible. You never see God as love, 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 although that's true. God is grace, 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 that is true. God is just, just, just. All those things are true, but when you have the three words together, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, it magnifies the absolute transcendent holiness of the Lord. And these, these burning ones, these seraphim, they're covering their eyes because God is too glorious to look upon. And they're covering their feet because they are on holy ground. And the other, the other wings they're flying, meaning they're ready to serve the God, serve God at the, at the drop of a hat if they need to. And so Isaiah is there, and he's in the temple. And what's his response? It's one of utter terror and fear. Notice what he says when the, when the foundations are shaking and the thresholds are shaking and, the, and the, the temple was filled with smoke. In verse 5, he says, woe is me. Now, we don't get that in our English translations. Woe is me is literally Isaiah is, is calling down a curse upon him. He knows he's toast. He's saying, I am damned. I am cursed. I know I'm dead. I am not fit to be in the presence of this holy God. Woe is me. And then he says, I'm undone. I'm lost. Literally, in the original language, I'm coming apart at the seams. Isaiah is spiritually unraveling in the very holy presence of God. And he realizes his sin. He confesses that sin, says, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. He came face to face with a three-times holy God, and he realized he was dead because he'd seen the king. He'd been in the presence of the holy God. He was coming apart at the seams. R.C. Sproul says this, God is the mysterious stranger who threatens our security. In his presence we quake and tremble, meeting him personally may be our greatest trauma. Exodus fifteen eleven. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? Who is like you, and what's the answer? There's nobody like God. Revelation 15, 4. Who will not fear, O Lord? And glorify your name, for you alone are holy. All the nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Our great God is absolutely holy, transcendent, powerful, majestic, glorious, high, and lifted up. And we are not. We are unholy, unrighteous, finite creatures and enslaved to sin without Christ. So as we turn to Galatians chapter 2 this morning, which I'd invite you to turn there now, I want us to ask what I think is one of the greatest, most important fundamental questions that any of us can ask. The answer to this question has eternal consequences. The answer to this question is fundamental to what the gospel is all about. It's at the heart of the Christian faith. Psalm 130 verse 3 says this, If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? Think about that for a moment. If God kept a record of all of our sins... Who could stand before him? And the answer is, none of us. So here's the question, the most important question, the most fundamental question. How can you, as a sinner, have a right relationship with a holy God? how can you as a sinner, like Isaiah in the presence, how can you as a sinner, and you know you're a sinner, we all know we're sinners, how can we have a right relationship with a holy God? See, if God is inflexible in his holiness, if God is absolutely, supremely, sovereignly, majestic, and righteous, and pure, and transcendent, how can you be right with that God? How do you get into that God's good graces. How do you go from being one who's like Isaiah, I'm lost, I'm condemned, I'm dead. How do you go from that to being a child of God, to being accepted by God, to being in a right relationship with your creator? And here's the answer. You're declared right with God, not on the basis of your works, but on faith in Christ. What we're going to see before us over the next few weeks is what I think is the heart of the book of Galatians. Probably some of the most important passages that we find in the New Testament in relationship to the Christian faith. So let's read together Galatians chapter 2, starting in verse 15, going through 21. We're we're not going to get all of this done today. This is going to probably be a three-week section here as we, we, we spend time in this passage of Scripture. Verse 15 we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in This passage of scripture is the heart of the gospel. It's the heart of Christianity. It's the heart of our faith. Martin Luther gave this warning. He said this, I'm making such a point of all of this to keep anyone from supposing that the doctrine of faith is an easy matter. It is indeed easy to talk about, but it's hard to grasp and it is easily obscured and lost. Therefore, let us with all diligence and humility devote ourselves to the study of sacred scripture and to serious prayer, lest we lose the truth of the gospel. I've said it many times from this pulpit. There is a danger in losing the truth of the gospel. That's why we've got to be reminded of it over and over and over again. So what I want us to do this morning is look at this passage of Scripture. We're just going to look at verses 15 and especially 16. 16 is where we're going to camp out. We're going to look at this under two large headings. Here's the first. The first big heading this morning. Justification by faith explained. Explained. Three times, Paul states it. You're not justified by works. You're not justified by works. You're not justified by works. You're justified by faith. You're justified by faith. Three times he says it. And so it's very important that we understand what it means to be justified. It's not a word that we use often in our culture. We kind of have an idea of what we think it means, But I want to just spend some time this morning explaining it because I think it's important for Paul to explain the doctrine. So under this big category of the doctrine of justification by faith explained, I want us to look at just four truths, four aspects in explaining this doctrine. And the reason why I think we need to explain it, because if we don't understand it, we don't understand how you were saved. We don't understand the gospel. We don't understand evangelism. We don't understand our Christian faith. So here's the first. The foundation. The foundation. This answers the question, on what basis or foundation can sinners be justified or accepted by a holy God? The question is, okay, how can God do this? How can God actually forgive us as sinners? And the answer is very simple. We sang it earlier. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness? The answer is it's only through the blood of Christ alone. Romans 5, 9. Since therefore now we've been justified by his blood, we've been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. The only way that anybody can have a right relationship with with God is through the blood of Christ who died on the cross, rose again for our sins. You see, there's nothing inherent in us as humans that merits it. There's nothing in us that's the foundation for it. It's not that we're good. It's not that we're worthy. It's not that we have something to contribute to God. It's none of that is the basis for why God does that. As a matter of fact, God says that he justifies the ungodly. Those that are in desperate need of forgiveness. Romans chapter 4, verse 5. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Where is your hope? If your hope is in yourself, that is sinking sand. What does the song say? My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. So the foundation, before we can go any further, the only foundation for how sinners can be right with the holy God is on the foundation of Jesus Christ and His blood and His righteousness. There's nothing in us at all. Okay, second. The meaning. Paul uses the word three times. He's gonna use it throughout the book of Galatians, so we need to get familiar with it. What is the meaning of the word justified? What exactly does this word mean? So that's the second thing we're gonna look at. The meaning. The meaning of the word. Well, the the word itself, if you look at it from the original language, it comes from two worlds the world of the legal court system, and the world of banking. So it's a, it's a legal term, it's a banking term. The best way I know how to illustrate this, and I've given this, this illustration many times before, but I want you to picture your life as a bank account. Okay. Your life as a bank account, Jesus' life as a bank account. Now some of you aren't old enough to have bank accounts, but just pretend with me that you have a debit card. Okay, Everybody understand what a debit card is? Okay, So, because your life is in major debt to sin, because you've accumulated sin after sin after sin after sin, you, you, you have a major spiritual debt before God. And God is the judge of the universe. And as the judge of the universe, God looks down upon your life, and he looks down upon you, and from the judge's chair, he makes a pronouncement. He says, you're guilty. You're bankrupt. You're hopeless. And if you die in that state of being spiritually bankrupt, you end up going to hell. So that's your status before a holy God. Your bank account's absolutely empty. But something happens. You see, when you believe in Jesus, all of your sin debt goes into His account. And all of His perfect righteousness, His perfect record, everything perfect about Christ goes into your account so there's this exchange this debit that happens your sins debited out of your account and Christ's righteousness is debited into your account so now what's your account look like is it your is your account a negative anymore no you have the account of Christ and what does God the judge do when God the judge looks down upon your life does he see your negative debt anymore no he sees Jesus and based upon seeing Jesus God can make a verdict God, the judge, can make a verdict. He can, he can bring the gavel down upon the, the benches, uh, upon, the, upon the, uh, the bench there, and he can say, Not guilty. You are not guilty. God can look down upon your life, and he can say, With this powerful verdict, I see the righteousness of Christ. I don't see your sin anymore. And based upon that, I'm wiping your record totally clean and I'm making a once and for all verdict, not guilty. Okay, so we've answered about the foundation. The foundation is the blood and righteousness of Christ. We've looked at, what does it mean? It's a legal declaration whereby you're declared not guilty on account of the righteousness of Christ being reckoned or imputed or, or debited into your account. Let's, let's look at the third question. The means, the means, this answers the question, I think we're a little bit behind, Let's, uh, it's the third one, the means, the, the answer to the question, how is a sinner actually justified? How does it happen? Okay, so the means of justification, how does it happen? The answer is, and Paul says it three times there, not by works, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Not by works, but by faith. Okay, let's explore these two issues for a moment here. What does Paul mean by works of the law? He says it three times. We know, verse 16, that a person is not justified by works of the law. He says it down there. In order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Three times, works of the law. Well, Psalm 143, verse 2 says this. Enter not into judgment with your servant for no one is living, no one living is righteous before you. No one living is righteous before you. Nobody's righteous before God. Romans 3.20 For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Okay, what is the law? What are works of the law? Well, let me just kind of just basically sum it up this way. It's all of the requirements that God gave to Israel in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy that we wrap up and we call in in shorthand the Ten Commandments, but all those laws. And then you can extrapolate it out and say it's any command in the Bible that you are supposed to obey is a work of the law. So anything in the Bible that you are commanded to do is a work of the law. Now, the law itself is good. The Ten Commandments are good because God gave it. But we've got to understand the purpose and why He gave it. Romans 7, 12-14. Paul says the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Okay, so the law is good. Did that which is good then bring death to me by no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I'm of the flesh sold under sin. The law is good because God gave it, but it was never ever meant to be a way for you to be in god's good graces through obedience to that law the purpose of the law and we'll get to this in chapter three the purpose of the law one of the purposes of the law is to show you that you are bankrupt that you are in desperate need of salvation and that you could never ever in a million years earn that so here's paul's point no human deed no human work or any measure of obedience, or no matter how sincere you are in performing them, whether it's going to church, whether it's being baptized, whether it's giving tithes and offerings, whether it's giving money, whatever type of human effort you do can never, ever get you into a position where you're right with God, where God can look down at you and say, not guilty. God can't make that pronouncement upon your life by anything that you do. Listen to this passage from James chapter 2, verse 10. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. That's great news, right? I thought I was doing really good. If you obey 99% of the law and you fail at that 1%, how much have you broken? Have you broken 1%? You've broken 100%. The law was never meant for you to be able to keep it as a way to earn a relationship with God. It cannot be done. No amount of human effort, human ingenuity, human um, accomplishment, anything that you do can get you into a right relationship with God. So Paul says three times it's not by works of the law. But then he's going to give how it happens. It's through faith in Christ. Let me just stop and talk about faith for a moment, because I think there's a lot of confusion in the Christian world today. So many Christians talk about the quality of your faith as opposed to the object of your faith. What do I mean by that? Are you living for Jesus? How intense is your faith? Are you doing all that you can do to love Jesus? And they're so focused on how intense and how faithful you are to God that you stop and think about, it's not my faithfulness that saves me, it's Christ that saves me. See, oftentimes we substitute the word faithfulness for faith. And when we do that, we've made it a work. I want you to think about something for a moment. Your faith can be very, very weak, and you can still be fully justified. Think in your mind about two bridges. They go across the canyon. Anybody ever been to the Royal Gorge? Down and down in um, southern Colorado? Okay, so two bridges. One bridge is a rickety little wooden bridge that you look at and you think, I'm not sure if that's going to hold me up. But you're confident in your faith. I'm faithful. I'm good. I'm confident. So you step out in your own confidence on that bridge. And no matter how confident you are, what's the problem? The bridge can't hold you up no matter how faithful or confident you are. It's not your faith, it's the bridge. All right, let's picture another bridge. Another bridge is this big concrete steel bridge that looks very, very, it's brand new, and you have very weak faith, and you're trembling, you're like, you know what, I I have weak faith, I'm not sure about this, and you step out on that. What are you trusting in, your faith or the bridge? See, here's the point. It's not the intensity or quality of your faith, It's who your faith is in. It's Christ. Now, justification is very, very helpful to understand because of the little preposition through. I want to teach you something here because there have been heresies and church debates for the past 500 years over a little preposition. Okay, look in your Bibles. Verse 16. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through. You guys see the word through? T-H-R-O-U-G-H. Through faith? What does that mean? Through faith means by the means of faith. It has been mistranslated. Some people have mistranslated as on account of your faith. There's a huge difference between by means of faith and on account of your faith. One of them shows it as a way that you connect yourself to Christ as an empty hand reaching out and to receive a gift. The other one says it's the basis of your salvation. It's by means versus on account of your faith. See, here's the thing that you need to understand. Your faith doesn't save you. Jesus saves you. Faith is our act, but not our work. It's an instrument of reception by means of the Holy Spirit giving us faith. See, here's the thing about it. (laughs) That little preposition, through faith, shows us that faith itself is a gift of God to you. Grace produces faith. It's not the other way around. You don't exercise faith in order to get grace. God graces you in order for you to have faith. So even the faith that you have to believe in Jesus is not your faith. It's a gift from God. Why? Well, let's let Paul answer the question for us. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Let's listen to the language Paul uses here. You were dead. Let me just ask you a question. What does dead mean? What's the Greek word for dead? Necros. But what does it mean? Dead. Does it mean I'm sleepy? Okay, so let me think about something. If you go to a morgue to this afternoon, okay, you go to Cheney Rager, you go downstairs, they show me the morgue, really morbid thing to do, and you go down to a corpse and you begin to tickle the corpse. What's the corpse going to do? Is it going to start laughing? Okay, nothing's working here. Let me go down there. Okay, I'll get a big old, I'll get a big old um, safety pin, and I'll poke its toe. What's going to happen? Nothing. Why is nothing happening when you stimulate or, you, or you, you do things to a corpse? Why does it not do anything? Because it is dead spiritually, before Christ were dead. Notice what Paul says. You were dead in the trespasses and sins you once walked, following the course of the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We're spiritually dead. We were enslaved to Satan. We were enslaved to the world. We were enslaved to our flesh. We were children of wrath. We were spiritually unable to do anything because we were dead. So God had to do something to overcome that deadness in order for us to be made alive. And so Paul goes on and gives us that most famous passage of scripture in the context of Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith. Same little expression there, through faith. And this is not your own doing It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. What's not your own doing? Salvation, right? Right? What's not your own doing? Grace, right? What's not your own doing, according to this passage of Scripture? Faith. Faith is a gift that God has to give you. It's not your own doing. It's a gift of God. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 29, Paul says it this way. It has been granted to you. What is granted? It's been granted, it's been given, it's been grace to you, that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer. So it's been granted to us to believe in Jesus. So even the faith you have to reach out an empty hand and receive the gift is something that God has to give you. Because if not, then your faith becomes even a work. And that could be a merit. And so that little preposition, through, tells us that even the faith that we have to believe in Jesus is not our own. God's got to even give us the faith, and he does that when he makes us alive. But there's another little word there, another little preposition. Okay, Look closely, verse 16. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of law, but through, by the means of, faith in Jesus Christ, so we also have believed in In Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith. In is another little preposition. In. We looked at this word back when we were in the Gospel of John. John 3.16 uses the same exact expression. John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him, same preposition, should not perish but have eternal life. Now what's the importance of that little word In. It could really be translated into. You believe into Jesus. It's this whole idea that you are plunging your entire life into Christ in a personal relationship. And so when you take that through faith and that in Jesus, you take those two prepositions through and in, what it tells us about faith is it's more than just mere mental intellectual accent to some of the facts about Jesus. It means that you embrace wholeheartedly Christ alone as your life. You give your entire life to him. You trust him. You embrace him personally. And, And you wholeheartedly receive him. You don't just know about him, or know facts about him, or believe about him. Th- those two prepositions really show us that it's, a, it's, a, it's all or nothing. You're giving your entire life to Jesus Christ alone. Okay, what's the result? What's the result? Okay, so we looked at the foundation for justification, the blood and righteousness of Christ. The meaning, it's a legal verdict where God declares you not guilty. The means, it comes through faith, not by works. Okay, let's talk about the result. And this answers the question, what's the result? Or what is the blessing? What's the blessing of being justified? What's the result? What happens? When you you trust in Jesus and that righteousness comes into your account and that sin goes into his account and this great exchange happens, what happens? Well, here's the answer. It's a permanent position there's no levels or gradations it's a permanent position Romans 5 1 through 2 therefore since we've been justified by faith we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through him we've also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God here's the beauty about justification it's a one-time declaration God the Father, at one point in time, looks down and makes that declaration. And once he makes that legal verdict, it is permanent. Your record is permanent. You're no longer on death row. You're no longer a condemned criminal. You are now permanently in God's family. It's instantaneous. It's permanent. You don't don't have degrees like one day I'm more justified and one day I'm less justified and I need to worry if I'm just. No, it is a permanent, it's a permanent position. Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's the opposite. That's the mere opposite of justification. The opposite of justification is condemnation. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. How do you get in Christ Jesus? Through faith, a faith that justifies. Okay, that was justification explained. That was the big heading, justification explained. Now let's let's make it practical this morning. Justification experienced. What are the implications of this? How does it work out in your life? You may say, okay, I understand the doctrine, Sean. I got down. It's not by works. It's by faith. It's a one-time declaration. It's a legal verdict. It's by the means of the blood and righteousness of Christ. Okay, what does that mean for me? Well, let me just give you a few implications. First of all, it protects you against insecurity and guilt. Because God accepts you as a loving father, not as a judge. You see, when you have been accepted by God, you no longer relate to God as your judge. Now, non-believers relate to God as their judge. But if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, he's no longer your judge. He's a heavenly father. And he's accepted you into his family. Because all of your sins have been credited to Christ. And all of Christ's righteousness has been credited to you. So you don't have to worry. You know, a lot of Christians I hear, man, I don't know if God accepts me. I just feel so insecure. I feel so guilty. I don't know if he could ever forgive me. I feel like I've sinned beyond his reach. I'm not sure. They just live this frustrated, guilty, insecure life. Let me say this. The doctrine of justification will free you up from insecurity because you can know every day when you wake up, you are accepted by God. And you're a child of God and you're in his family. Romans 8, 33 through 34. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Answer nobody. It's God who justifies. Who's to condemn? Answer nobody. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who's going to bring a charge against you? Well, the devil will. But guess what? His charge won't stick. We sang it earlier. Before the throne of God above, the second verse. When Satan tempts me to despair. And that will happen. And tells me of the guilt within. When Satan comes to you and says, You're a guilty, rotten sinner, why would God ever love you? You've sinned the last time, He's given up on you. When Satan tempts you to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see Him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free, for God The just, God the judge, is satisfied to look on Jesus and pardon me. Justification frees you up from guilt and fear and insecurity and despair. Here's the second thing it provides you assurance of your salvation. If it's a one time declaration whereby you are in a permanent state of being accepted by God, you can never lose your salvation. You can never be unjustified. There's no degrees. It's not like one day, uh, see, so, some Christians play the game with the little, what was it, the daisies? He loves me. He loves me not. He loves I hope at the end of my life, it's not he loves me not. Justification says, no, he loves you. And on your worst days when you're tanking and on your best, let's think about this, on your worst days when you're cussing at your spouse, when you're kicking your dog, when you're speeding in traffic, and you're, and you're, and you're just, you're bad that day. Does God love you less on that day than on the days where I'm having my quiet time and I'm helping the poor and I'm feeding the sick and I'm leading a Bible study and I'm doing all these great things? Does God love you more on the days when you're really, really good and he really doesn't like you on the days you're doing really bad? No, God's love for you is permanent. And he accepts you. And you know that you can never fall out of his good graces because that verdict comes down once and for all and says, not guilty, I see Jesus. 1 John 3.1, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we can be called the children of God, and so we are. You can rest in the finished work of Christ that you will be forever righteous before God. So it it takes away that guilt, takes away that insecurity, it gives you the assurance of your salvation that God loves you. But here's the third thing, and we're going to look at this next week, but I'm just going to give you, I'm just going to, Give you a little taste this morning. It produces gratitude in obedience to Christ. Okay, you don't obey Jesus in order, or, or you don't obey God in order to get God to love you. If I just do these things, then God will love me. No, you obey because He already does love you. And you do it out of thankfulness, you do it out of joy. You don't do works in order to earn the salvation, you do good works as a result of your salvation. But justification gives you the motivation to live for God. 2 Corinthians 9.15 says this, Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Some translations say indescribable. See, here's the bottom line. You are way more sinful than you could ever imagine before a holy God but God is way more loving and gracious than you could ever imagine in giving us this inexpressible gift. See, you go from being a convicted felon to being a child of God. You go from being a condemned sinner to having the perfect record of Christ. You go from being at war with God in your sin to being at peace with God Forever, You go from being unholy and unrighteous and, like Isaiah, toast to being forever accepted and righteous and loved. And here's the point. Never in a million years could you produce this on your own. You can never clean yourself up. You can never do enough good deeds. You can never do works of the law. It's only through faith. It's an indescribable gift. It's an inexpressible gift. The reasons it's inexpressible is because never in a million years would we think it up to have Jesus die on the cross for us and never in a million years could we do enough to earn it. It's by trusting. So here's my question for you this morning. Will you trust, if you have not, will you trust, and I mean wholeheartedly, place your trust in Jesus Christ alone to save you? And when you do, When you place your faith in Jesus Christ, every single one of your sins, past, present, and future, are forever taken out of your record, and you're given the perfect righteousness of Christ. And God can look down upon your life, and and he can say to you, child of mine, you are not guilty. You are forever accepted in my sight. See, some of you can walk out of this place with a new song in your heart. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. You see, before you came in here, you said, you know, my hope's built on me. My hope's built on what I can do. My hope's built on pleasures. My hope's built on all these things that I can do in my own power to either earn something with God or live for myself. My hope is built on myself. And the song says anything else besides Jesus is sinking sand. You're going to find yourself in quicksand. But you can walk out of here today. My hope is built. My hope is built on nothing else, nothing else than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name, on Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground, all other ground is sinking sand. I don't know about you, but I want all of us to walk out of here on the solid rock of Jesus Christ. Would you bow your heads with me this morning? as we go before Him. Our hearts, but we don't know them as well as you do, so we ask this morning that you would search our hearts to see if there be any offensive way in us. Where is our trust this morning? Are we trusting in ourselves? Is our hope built nothing on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness? Do we have you as our Savior, Jesus, as the solid rock? Lord, my prayer, first of all, is for any in this congregation, anybody in this room this morning that's never trusted you alone, Jesus, that today, for the very first time, they would believe in Jesus and have their sins forgiven, and today would be their day of salvation. Lord, would if there's anybody here today, Lord, would you save them by, by your grace alone? Lord, for those of us who have been saved by your grace but we may be living in guilt or we may be living in insecurity or we may be unsure of our of our standing before you help us to realize Lord that if we have trusted you for salvation we are in a permanent position of being forever accepted and that should bring joy and that should bring comfort and that should bring assurance not guilt not fear Lord, some of us need to walk out of this place knowing that our hope is in the solid rock of Christ and Jesus you hold us in your hand Lord, there may be some that are, I have a weak faith. I'm barely hanging on. Helping to realize it's not the quality of their faith, but it's the object of their faith, Jesus. And Lord Jesus, you're more than enough to sustain us and to encourage us and to love us and to support us. So will we walk out of this place with joy, with encouragement, knowing that we're accepted because of the blood and righteousness of Christ. Lord Jesus, we give you honor and glory this morning for your inexpressible, indescribable gift. We can't express it. We can't describe it. All we can do is receive it. Thank you, Jesus, for this gift. We can never pay you back All we can do is worship on our knees in thankfulness. We love you, we honor you, and it's in your name that we pray these things.